It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast with all the best, most mind-expanding science news in the world. Yes, and this week that even includes a mystery at the very edge of our solar system. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, I'm our Features Editor. And I'm Graham Lawton, Staff Writer. Joining us today are reporter Claire Wilson and science writer Stuart Clark. Hi to you both. Hello. Hi Graham, hi Tiff, great to be uh, with you again. Nice to have you back, Stu. Coming up, we've got a surprisingly spicy story about plain old vanilla and a look at how the changing climate may affect seasonal allergies. We'll also get an update on a third wave of COVID-19 and look into the eyes of a sleeping octopus. (laughs) Before we get into all of that, though, a quick reminder that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. And also, after listening to this, do go and listen to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, which is completely pandemic-free programming. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And that is the sound of spring. Well, for many of us anyway. Uh, And in London, at least, spring has definitely sprung. And along with it, the hay fever season. Uh, Any hay fever sufferers in the pod today? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, unfortunately. Okay, well, I have bad news for you, because in northwestern Europe, which obviously includes the British Isles, the hay fever season is forecast to get a lot worse, thanks to climate change. Worse in what way? Well, in every imaginable way, I'm afraid. (laughs) The pollen seasons are forecast to start earlier, they're forecast to last longer, and they're going to be even more feverish uh, due to higher pollen counts. And that's really down to two factors, rising temperatures, which some plants take as a signal that spring has arrived and it's time to start pumping out the pollen, and rising carbon dioxide, which up to a certain point acts like a fertiliser, so it makes plants grow bigger and faster. Now, that's quite good news for the environment because it soaks up more CO2, but it's bad news for people who have hay fever. Oh God, my hay fever is already bad, so this is going to make things worse. What's the latest? Yeah, so a new study has modelled what would happen to grass pollens. Now, grasses are a leading cause of hay fever, not the only one, because they're wind-pollinated. So in northern Europe, if carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere doubled from where they are today, they found that the hay fever season would be 60% more severe. Wait, if, if CO2 doubled from where it is now... Yeah, yeah, that is a lot of CO2. And I dare say if we let that happen, we'd have a bigger problem than worse hay fever. But the study's really sort of supposed to demonstrate the, illustrate the direction of travel rather than the final destination. And the point in there is clear that higher CO2 and warmer temperatures equals worse hay fever. 
And the study only looked at grasses, you know, pollen from trees and weeds and even some crops like rapeseed also get up people's noses. Yikes, that is not good. So how certain are the researchers that, that this will happen? Well, there is one reason to be sniffy about the study, if you forgive the pun, <laughs> is that it didn't model the effects of climate change on the distribution of plants. So it may be that as Northern Europe develops a more Mediterranean style climate and ecosystem, that might blunt the hay fever explosion. You know, But actually, that seems quite unlikely because people in Southern Europe also have allergic reactions to pollen uh, just from different species. So olive trees are a major cause of hay fever in Spain. So if we end up having olive groves in Britain, that's not going to solve the hay fever problem. Oh, God. So this is yet another reason, if we needed one, to stop dumping so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Bad hay fever actually means a lot more than just sort of itchy eyes and runny noses anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, hay fever is already the most prevalent chronic non-communicable disease in Europe. Uh, and it's a surprisingly big drain on the economy and health services. You know, about 40% of people in northwestern Europe get hay fever. And that means days off work, days off school, bad sleep, you know, all the things that cost the economy a lot of money. So is there anything we can do about it? Uh, no, uh, not really. No, <laughs> the researchers say the only options really are to medicate and avoid pollen. Uh, and that means staying indoors, which is not really what we want to be doing when spring has sprung. Now on to our COVID update. So even as restrictions are easing up in many places, there's been a lot of discussion about a coming third wave of COVID-19 infections. In the U.S., the head of the Centers for Disease Control said this week she fears it is imminent there. So, Claire, are we going to have a third wave here in the U.K.? Well, yes, uh, that is most likely, although uh, that doesn't mean it will be the same kind of wave or surge as the first and second waves that we've had so far. And that's in spite of vaccinating, I think it's more than 30 million people now in the U.K. with at least one dose. Yeah, that's right. But we've got to remember the vaccines are not perfect. So overall, after one dose, uh, the vaccines we have are about 80% effective at preventing people from getting so ill that they have to go to hospital, according to the first real world evidence coming in in the UK. Um, they are probably somewhat less effective than that at stopping people from catching the virus and potentially passing it on, even if they don't get sick themselves. But we don't have an exact figure for that yet. But the latest data from the CDC is encouraging on that point, though, right? That that people who are vaccinated are certainly unlikely to transmit the virus. Yes, a new study from the CDC um, from people in the US showed that after two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, people's risk of infection fell by 90%, which is much more than we thought it would be. And, and of course, if you don't get infected yourself, you won't, you can't pass on the virus. So that's really good figure. But of course, it's not 100%. Um, and it is possible that it would be lower for people who are older, or have weak immune systems. And as you say, that particular study just pertains to the Pfizer vaccine, right? Yes. And it doesn't look at the AstraZeneca one, which is what most people are now receiving here in the UK. So even if all adults get vaccinated, some people who are vaccinated will still get sick or can still get sick. Yeah, that's right. And of course, um, not everyone will get vaccinated. Some people will turn down the jab. And we also don't give the vaccine to children in the UK. That's everyone under 18. That's about 20% of the population. Oh, wow. So putting sort of these three groups of people together, children, people who refuse the vaccine, and those who have the vaccine, but it fails to protect them 
sort of how many people are you left with who would be vulnerable? Yeah, it's a hard sum to do because there are lots of other factors to consider, um, including the number of people who already have natural immunity to coronavirus from catching the infection. But to your question, how big is that vulnerable group? Well, a group of scientists at Imperial College London have uh, modelled that by July, which is roughly when the UK should have given all eligible adults at least their first dose of vaccine, about a third of the population could still catch the virus. Oh, wow. A third seems like a lot. Yeah, but remember, that's only the people who could catch the virus, not necessarily become ill with it or even very ill. So this is the crux of the difference between any third wave that we have and our first and second waves, that the people who do catch it will be less likely to need to go to hospital. And remember, under 18s don't get as sick as adults, thankfully, and the people who've had the vaccine but catch the virus anyway should also get less ill. So if we're pretty sure that we are going to encounter a third wave, do we have any idea how many people will get severely ill or die in that third wave? Well, unfortunately, that's what we don't know. What we do know is that in the third wave, there will be fewer deaths and fewer hospitalizations per case or per infection. But we don't know exactly how much fewer. So it depends on things like how fast the vaccine is rolled out, so how many people are immune. Um, another really important variable is exactly how much the vaccine protects against infections. So those figures that we talked about earlier from the UK and from the CDC, they're very promising. But if new variants come into the country that the vaccine is less effective against, then that would also increase the deadliness of any third wave. So all these unknowns are why we have to lift the lockdown restrictions slowly, doing one thing at a time and then waiting to see how that change impacts case numbers. Time out. Time to tell you about our new essential guide to evolution. Yes, our essential guides provide everything you need to know about a particular topic in science based on our reporting in New Scientist. We've got guides to quantum physics, human health, artificial intelligence and more. And our latest essential guide is all about evolution, Darwin's theory of natural selection and what it means for life. To get 10% off on your copy of this essential guide, go to shop.newscientist.com and enter the code EVO10, that's E-V-O-10, at the checkout. At the start of the show, I promised mystery at the edge of the solar system, and we will not disappoint. So Stuart, this week you've written about whether there might be a black hole in our own backyard, so to speak. Yeah, this is super fascinating. So for some time now, perhaps uh, about seven years or more, uh, we've known that or we've seen hints that there's something odd that's going on in the very outer reaches of the solar system. So the small worlds that are out there, these Kuiper Belt objects and the dwarf icy planets that are there, they exist on highly elliptical orbits. And there's good hints that those orbits seem to be aligned in some way. And the only thing that can do that is a large gravitating object. Okay, so is that where the belief that there might be a planet nine out at the edge of the solar system comes from? That's right. And so that was the initial sort of idea that there must be some sort of planet doing this. The, the mass of that planet 
is somewhere between or would have to be somewhere between about five and 15 times the mass of the earth. And it's very difficult to form something that large out there. So other researchers have started to look for other possibilities of what this could be. And they've come up with the idea that it could be a black hole. Okay. So I know there's a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. So the Milky Way, which itself is home to lots and lots of solar systems, including ours, but a black hole at the edge of our very own solar system, you know, just out beyond Neptune, as it were, that would be a really big deal, right? It would be um, a proper game changer. I mean, this would be big and spectacular for so many reasons. You know, one is how cool would it be to have a black hole out there pretty close astronomically. You could imagine sending spacecraft to it to understand it and to study the strong gravitational fields around it, perhaps give us that vital clue to get us beyond Einstein with a new theory of gravity. But most importantly of all, a black hole the size of a few times that of the Earth that cannot form in any other way than at the very beginning of the universe in the Big Bang. It would be something called a primordial black hole, and it would be a messenger, a time capsule that uh, sort of encodes the information about how our universe formed. Let me just get my head around this, Stu. You're saying there might be a black hole from the Big Bang just around the corner. Yes, that's what people are starting to, to wonder. And it is, I mean, this is all speculative at the moment. Um, but people, are, astronomers, are starting to see more and more observations that seem difficult to explain, especially ones that involve black holes. For example, the gravitational wave detections that we see, the masses of the black holes that are being seen in those events are very difficult to explain with sort of astrophysical scenarios, these ideas that black holes are the remnants left behind from exploded stars. And so more and more people are starting to think that there is a whole continuum of black holes of all different masses, these primordial black holes ranging from about the size of sort of medium-sized asteroids up to tens of times the mass of the sun. And therefore, this object that we think might be in the outer solar system of a five to 15 times the mass of the Earth, that would sit in that continuum as well. It could even be the dark matter. And when we talk about this being right in our backyard, how far are we talking? Like how, how far is the closest black hole that we know about? And how far is this potential one? So the closest black holes that we that we know of are the ones that are formed in stellar explosions and they're you know several hundred to thousand light years away that we see those to have something that is about 500 or so times the distance of the earth from the sun away you know that's super close astronomically speaking and there are people who are already thinking of how would you get a spacecraft to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. That kind of technology would, once perfected, easily get us to, you know, 500 astronomical units away around this black hole. 
And now on to life form of the week. Graham, what is it? This week we're celebrating the octopus. Uh, we've known for a long time that cephalopods, that's the group of mollusks that includes octopi, squid, cuttlefish and nautiluses, appear to be remarkably intelligent. Wait, hang on a minute. Is it octopi or octopuses? Well, actually, there's a third plural, octopodes, which is from the <laughs> Greek. Uh, so cephalopods derive from the Greek word for head foot. And so the plural really should be octopodes. But let's go with the English version, octopuses. Uh, octopuses can navigate mazes, they can use tools, they can mimic other species, they learn from each other and they can solve problems. And if I remember rightly, even predict World Cup results? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a famous octopus called Paul, which correctly predicted the results of numerous games in the FIFA World Cup of 2010, although he was mostly predicting Germany's results. So win, 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 <laughs> win, win. A, had a pretty decent shot of being right, although I'd just like to point out Germany lost to North Macedonia this week. Um, anyway, <laughs> octopuses are certainly the most intelligent of the vertebra- invertebrates. They've been described as a kind of alien intelligence on Earth, as they've been evolving separately from our lineage for more than 500 million years. Okay, so why are we talking about them this week? So the big cephalopod news this week is that octopuses appear to dream. Uh, The fact that they sleep is well known, because, you know, even fruit flies sleep, so it would be a surprise if octopuses didn't. But what is new is that they have two different phases of sleep, a bit like we do. You know, we have deep sleep and REM sleep, and REM stands for rapid eye movement. And this is some research out of Brazil where they filmed octopuses as they slept in tanks in the lab. Now, most of the time they were asleep, they were in a state called quiet sleep. They were very still, their eyes were closed, and they were breathing very regularly. So kind of like a human in deep sleep. Yeah, exactly. But every 30 to 40 minutes, the octopuses entered a very different state, which lasted about one to two minutes. They changed colour, their skin texture changed. So they have these little bumps called papillae, which can be raised. So a bit like getting goosebumps. And they moved their tentacles around. And this is the really uncanny bit. They moved their eyes around too. So does that mean they have REM sleep like we do? I I don't think we can go quite that far. I mean, we know that other mammals and birds and reptiles even have what looks like REM sleep. And we also know that in humans, at least, this is the sleep phase with the most active and vivid dreams. So it's really tempting to anthropomorphize the octopuses and suggest that they're dreaming as well in REM sleep. But, you know, they're so far away from us on the tree of life that it's probably not REM sleep as we know it. And whether, of course, they dream or not, it's just not possible for us to know. So could this possibly be an example of what's known as convergent evolution, where two very unrelated lineages kind of hit on the same solution to a biological problem by different avenues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be. But I mean, the problem with that explanation is that, you know, if they've hit on a solution, we don't know what the problem is because we don't really know what sleep is for. The function of sleep, believe it or not, still remains a mystery. Well, actually, how did they know for sure that the octopuses were still asleep? Yeah, they thought of that. So they showed them videos of crabs. Uh, and that when they're awake, that gets them really excited. But in this active sleep state, no response. So they were probably unconscious, but there they <laughs> go again, attributing kind of unknowable subjective states to mollusks. If they could be unconscious, maybe they could also be conscious. But, you know, we have no way of knowing. But, but it, even with the possibility of octopuses being so intelligent and conscious, I think for, I, for one, am never going to eat an octopus again. Well, it won't be a major sacrifice for me because I'm not sure I've ever had octopus anyway. Delicious. <laughs> and intelligent. 
here in the UK, we've had a few warm days, um, hints of, of spring, which is all it took for my kids to start asking for ice cream. And strawberry in particular is very popular in my house. Um, what about you guys? What are the favorite flavors for you? Oh, salted caramel. It's got to be for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm old school and goes to sort of mint choc chip or something like that. A classic. For me, I once had uh, mango and chili sorbet at a Ooh. festival, and it was absolutely amazing. I've never ever found it again. Although I have experimented with mango ice cream and chili sauce, not quite the same. <laughs> well, I'm surprised that no one said that their favorite flavor is vanilla, because it may not surprise anyone here that around the world when it comes to ice cream and other sweet treats in general the world's favorite flavor is actually plain old vanilla really with all those amazing flavors out there vanilla is the world's favorite yeah i mean i I have to admit the kinds of surveys that assess these kinds of preferences aren't super rigorous but anyway yes they seem to find that um that vanilla is the world's favorite flavor but despite its popularity vanilla has a really bad reputation for being well Vanilla, super boring. But now plant breeders, food researchers, and chefs are trying to change that. So they're going to try and spice up the vanilla? Indeed. The vast majority of the vanilla we consume in food products is artificial, meaning that it's made synthetically. But it reproduces the flavor of the main kind that we get naturally from plants, from the beans and seeds of vanilla orchids. Yeah, and that's the vanilla that comes from Madagascar, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's called vanilla planifolia, and it's the kind of vanilla flavor most commonly used in home baking and that kind of thing. But what's happened is in the past decade or so, there's been a huge rise in consumer demand for more natural ingredients and products. And so around 2015, many huge food manufacturers in the U.S. started changing their formulations and swapped out synthetic vanilla for the real stuff which meant suddenly there was huge demand for those real Madagascan vanilla beans or vanilla extracts made from them. And is there enough of that to go around? So that's the thing. For a while, it looked like we might be facing a huge shortage, and there is still very much that risk, and that has many people worried. It's also made them start to think about the vanilla supply more generally, because it turns out that there are around 100 different kinds of vanilla orchid that we know of, but we only actually use three. Oh, right. Well, I guess that's not really helping vanilla's reputation for being boring. Yeah. But also, if we're growing the same kinds of vanilla everywhere, doesn't that leave the plants more vulnerable to diseases like blight? I mean, like a lack of genetic diversity threatens the whole supply? Yeah, exactly. So it's really similar to something that you actually reported on for New Scientist not that long ago about the world's rubber supply, which there too, it comes almost exclusively from a single kind of tree. Actually, from a single clone of a single tree, one tree gave rise to all of the world's rubber. Yeah, so that's one of the major concerns about monoculture in general, sort of growing rows upon rows of genetically the same thing if that kind of plant is vulnerable to a particular disease, fungus, parasite, whatever, then the whole crop can really easily be taken out. But there is some good news here. So thinking about those two problems together, the lack of genetic diversity and the huge global demand for vanilla has now spurred efforts to cultivate a much wider range of vanilla and with it, new vanilla flavors. I'm just thinking here about a world without vanilla. It would be hell, wouldn't it? Anyway, look, so, I mean, how different can different vanillas actually taste? 
So as we report on in the story in the magazine this week, there are actually some pretty exciting new flavors now being cultivated, in particular by the plant breeder, Alan Chambers, who's at the University of Florida. So some apparently taste more of marshmallow, others have a bit of a caramel, caramelly tinge to them, and he's just start getting started and experimenting with these new varieties. Wow, so vanilla, not so vanilla anymore. That's all for this week. And before we go, I wanted to mention another fascinating feature that's in the magazine this week, written by Graham. It's about a breakthrough in our understanding of the immune system, and in particular, the finding that we actually have another kind of immune memory beyond the type that vaccines rely on that could have huge implications for how we fight disease in the future. It definitely could. And as Tiff said, that's in this week's magazine, along with Stu's amazing story about black holes. And remember, as a valued listener, you can get 20% off a subscription by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Claire and Stuart, for joining us. And please spread the word about our show. Goodbye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.